Hello, welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. My name is Phil Thompson, and uh, with me is Eric Armstrong. Hi there, Phil. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. It's been quite a while since we've done this, hasn't ages, it? Ages, ages. Well, it's uh, good, I think, that uh, we had a little hiatus, uh, and it's a little ironic that we had to wait until our school year started before we had enough time to uh, get back Yes, now that things are really busy, we can squeeze in the glossonomia. (laughs) Exactly, because we have a calendar to work from. Well, last time uh, was, uh, what show number is this? This is show number 15, yeah. Uh, And so I believe last time we did SNZ or S and Z. Or Z, as we say here in the Great Uh, White North. And it's uh, time for us to move over into a vowel episode. I think that it might be useful just to remind everybody how we do these shows, what the format and the goal is, even though somebody who's listening in some future date might be listening through without a gap. Mm -hmm. For those of you who have been keeping up with every moment, there's been a little bit of a gap, so perhaps you've forgotten how we do this. I think I might have forgotten how we do this. We'll figure it out. So our goal here is to talk about the sounds of speech how they're used, uh, how they're made, and uh, the variations that we run into as voice and speech teachers. We've been going back and forth between consonants and vowels, and we've spent some time talking about what those are, so I won't go into that here. Uh, If you're really confused about what a vowel is, you should go back to earlier episodes where we talk at length about it. Today, we're going to talk about a whole group of sounds, and I hope it'll become clear as we go along why we're grouping them together. And those sounds are a and a, or to think about it in terms of lexical sets, which we'll explain in a bit, trap, bath, and palm. Yeah, I think that's a a good intro to what we're looking at here. You know, these are the sounds that my students, when they're starting out, they say, Eric, I have trouble with the A's. Um, <laughs> yes. There are so many sounds that are represented by the letter A, and these three are, yeah. are not all of them. There's so many more sounds that we can represent with the letter A in spelling. Indeed. I, I was just looking at one of my older uh, pronunciation guidebooks. I believe it was Visitelli's... 25,000 words frequently mispronounced, uh, one of the sort of elocution and orthoepy books. And they're really very insistent on dealing with how the letter A is pronounced variously. And that's one reason why phonetics is so helpful for us, is we get to talk about the sound as a sound. Mm. Another thing, though, that we're going to be talking about in this episode is the, the sound category, the lexical set. Now, I know we've explained lexical sets before, but it might be worth running back through that. Do you want to give that a stab? Well, lexical sets were invented by a guy called John Wells, J.C. Wells in print. And uh, he was writing a very important book, uh, Accents of English, which is a three-volume set. And he did this in the early 80s. And his goal was to look at all of the accents of English, but he, he used reference 
accents as a starting place. And his two reference accents were received pronunciation, the sort of standard British, if you will, of, um, of England and Great Britain, and uh, general American, as he defined it, uh, yeah. the, the, the sort of equivalent standard accent in the United States. So he looked for a series of words to represent each of the major vowel sounds of those two standard forms of English. And he chose words that he felt would not be easily confused across the broad range of different accents. Um, and he has posted blog posts uh, in the last year or so about the process of, of writing that. And he, he said in, in that that he, he thinks that, you know, when he's dead and gone, people will remember him probably most for his lexical sets because they have, have been taken up yeah. by the, the phonological, the phonetic, the linguistic community accent. And dialect yeah. coaches use them a lot too now. Um, well, I find that I'm always using them and there's a wonderful convenience. And as you know, when I'm teaching phonetics to my students, I try to avoid having them come up with a key word for a sound as we're first learning the mm -hmm. sound because I want them to feel it, hear it, and experience it before they start saying, oh, that's like. But then once you've gone through that process, it's extremely convenient to talk about the word category or the the set of words, which is really what lexical set means. Mm -hmm. And I, as you just said, the, they're sets that are defined by their similarity of pronunciation, that is, of the vowel, in General American and RP. Uh, and the, the problem with that, of course, is that uh, there are variations of English that have perhaps further subsets of the, the, the what, what were grouped into a single uh, lexical set for RP yeah. and General American that uh, we didn't get enough granularity, if you will, uh, yeah. when, when uh, J.C. Wells, John Wells, did that. And uh, so sometimes, you know, there's a frustration that arises. If you're doing some kind of Irish-English, Hiberno-English, you'll find that you need, oh, there's not quite enough of a breakdown between the words yeah. that are all grouped in the nurse set, for instance. So today we're, we're having to look at three I think three different sets in a way because of the crossover between sets. Yes. And that in. When we did the kit episode, there was not much debate going on. No. You could talk about how kit words are pronounced in this accent or in that accent, but as for the complex interrelationship of which category a word belongs to, we're all pretty clear that something is either fleece or kit. We don't get confused between those categories because RP speakers and American English speakers pronounce them pretty much the same way. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, one of the, the things that we're teaching, not just how to make noises with our mouths, but it's an important thing that we teach, yeah. but we are teaching people to learn to recognize lexical sets that they already have, but perhaps more yeah. difficultly, more challenging is to teach people to learn how to break the groups that they have into subsets. Yeah. Um, if everything sounds the same to me, it becomes more challenging to have to discern, oh, this word actually could be in a different lexical set in a different form of English than the way I speak it. Yeah, really lexical sets are about the way we organize, organize the way we apply rules of pronunciation. And so 
there's a certain group of words that I will pronounce in the same way. Even if the way I pronounce them is different than the way you pronounce them, we can agree often on what category they're in. In the case of these sounds, trap, bath, and palm, which I promise we'll explain in more detail later, uh, we could have differences of opinion about where, how to pronounce those words, which category they should land in. Mm. Uh, I think that I should also mention at this point that one of the things that we've noticed as we've been doing these shows is that they get longer and longer and longer, that we have a, an ability, let's say, <laughs> uh, to pontificate at length. And uh, because there are three sounds, that gave us the idea that we might break things into three pieces. I don't think we'll be breaking them up by those three categories, but in this first one, what we intend to do is give you the background. In the second one, we'll talk about how trap and bath are really distinguished in the accents that distinguish them. And then finally, we'll do the leftovers, if you will, of variations in how trap is pronounced and really what we're talking about when we're talking about palm words. Does that make sense to you? I think it's a good plan, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to keep people up to speed <laughs> as we move through the three episodes. So each week we'll kind of introduce, get you back on track. So what's yeah, next? Good. What do we talk about now? Well, I think it would be a really valuable thing before we get into the lexical sets to reground ourselves in the phonetic landscape, mm -hmm. what the sounds are independent of what lexical set they land in. So the three main sounds that we're going to be dealing with are the ah, uh, the ah, uh, and the ah. Uh. Mm. You know, for some people, now, yeah. the way you said those, the last two will sound very similar. Um, and for others, they'll, they will yeah. have heard three very distinct sounds. So uh, I guess we're going to need to use some other language to describe yes. those three sounds. Um, so that we can think about them and also begin to get a um, sense of what the heck is going on inside your mouth so that uh, we can make those sounds ourselves or, or at least explore them. Quite right. And, and that's a terrific part of the process for anybody studying phonetics is to get their heads around, get their mouths around what's happening physically, uh, then to step into what's happening perceptually, how they, how they hear those sounds. The first one, I think that we'll have a good deal of agreement amongst many of our listeners, uh, and that is the open back, unrounded vowel, ah. Mm. It's the most uh, tongue cupping, if you will, or the most open position at the back of the tongue. Now, you could also say, and some phoneticians really describe things this way, it's the most open jaw position. Mm -hmm. uh, Generally speaking, voice and speech people like open jaws all the time, so we try not to distinguish sounds by how open or closed the jaw is, but it's certainly a possible way of describing it. Yes, I suspect that if you said to somebody, what's the noise you make when you go to the dentist and you open your mouth as wide as you can, they would say, ah, right? The dentist asks yes. you to open your mouth and say, ah. Um, and if you drop your jaw and find your tongue as low down into the floor of your mouth as possible, you'll probably get some variation of this kind of ah sound. Absolutely. And there, there are certainly variations in how it's realized. Uh, there, there's even 
I think, a tendency in the description in the phonetic literature to talk about a retraction of the tongue root. Mm. And certainly, if you were to look at X-ray film, you might see uh, a strong tongue retraction. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only way that one can do it. Uh, and I would say probably from a voice teacher's point of view, tongue root retraction is not one of the things we try to tell people to do. So it's possible to say, ah, with the tongue retracted or forward. Let me see if I can demonstrate that and see if we can hear a difference. Tongue root back, ah. Tongue root more forward, ah. I hope that the cupping and the opening of the tongue is the same in both of those, but the difference is in the tongue root. Does that yeah. seem like it's hearable? I, I certainly heard a difference between the two. Um, to me, the the tongue root retraction pulls the tongue into a space further in back in the mouth, which ultimately filters the sound and mutes more of the higher frequencies. And so we get yeah. what we perceive to be a darker sound, which is a little bit yeah. lower in its overtones. And then the more forward has a little bit more of the brightness, the pinginess that so many voice coaches like. Um, I do yeah. think that if uh, if one was working on an accent from a different place, it might be more appropriate to have uh, you know retracted tongue root, and yeah. uh, that uh, you know we often think about uh, voice of speech within the context of North American or English or Australian sort of mainstream theater or film use. But uh, I'm often reminded of uh, the, the voice coaches who work in South Africa with a very diverse population. And uh, one of the things that I remember uh, March Monroe, one of the um, mm -hmm. uh, teachers from South Africa, saying was, you know, she teaches for many languages. And so she's not really just aiming for the sounds of English. And the sounds that are yeah. appropriate for English, that bright forward sound, are not necessarily appropriate for other languages. And that really opened my mind to the thought that good voice use isn't always grounded in the same vocal qualities that we assume are healthy and appropriate. Yeah, we tend to lump uh, a certain aesthetic judgment together with a judgment of healthiness, and that ain't necessarily so. It ain't. Okay, so, so that's the next. Ah, let's. What's the next sound? Yeah, the next sound in terms of phonetic distance, uh, I guess, would be the forward cupping version, which would be ah. Uh, uh, I'm cupping. I'm moving that cup forward. I'm at the most open position at the front of the mouth. And you could say that there's not much difference between the most back and the most front version. As you said before, it, it can be hard to hear some of these distinctions. Mm. Uh, another reason, I guess, to think about it physically rather than acoustically. Right. Because I'm from Canada and our, the third sound, that the one we're getting to, is so open for us, mm -hmm. um, I, I think my version of this second sound, the open front unrounded vowel, is perhaps a little bit further back than yours. It's my, my version is more of an ah, ah. And uh, I, my, my reference is often something like Italian, right? If you're singing in Italian, ah, that uh, a little bit more, per, perhaps a little bit further back. And um, what, what that reminds me of is that acoustically, you know, on the IPA chart, 
the, the IPA chart has a really nice corner in the lower left-hand <laughs> side of it. And, but acoustically, yes. really, it's, it's more of a curve, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so um, where does that, that sound represented by that typographic A in the IPA system? I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, <laughs> where does that sound sit? So ah, 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 somewhere in there. Well, and I also think that when I'm trying to target it, and I think probably the same thing is true for you, it's not a native sound for me. Mm. It's not a sound that I use in my system. So I'm always inventing something, and I'm always inventing it in relationship to these other sounds. And so I might think about it as a, a sound used in another accent, mm. or I might think of it as a mutated version of one of my sounds. Right, right. So w where I just did it, I can't claim that that's my native or natural place because I don't have a native and natural place for right. that. Right. I have a native and natural place for it in as the beginning of a diphthong. Yeah. So yeah. at the beginning of I, for me, that's generally how I, I first taught myself to do it. So I would go I, ah, 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 and that's how I locked on to it. Um, and so ultimately, I essentially trained my ear to a certain sound now. So now I, it feels pretty solid for me. Well, I have a question for you, because I think sometimes I notice that your hesitation sound, uh, we try not to do hesitation sounds on this show, but as we edit them, we discover that they exist. Uh, I think that yours is more cupped and forward. Uh, 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 and I think mine is more central. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, yeah, mine, mine, it could very well be. Uh, yeah. So I, I think about it as, as a, a peculiar sound, and, but you say that you didn't normally have it, so uh, for both of us, it's a new sound. Sure, but, uh, uh, and I, did, I certainly didn't differentiate that sound for, for us having its own lexical set. Yes. Yes, um, I might have. I might have uh, actually had the ability on something like dance or can't or something like that on, on a word that might have been in a you know identifiable in a different lexical set. But my before I when I started to learn those the possibility of a new lexical set, I certainly couldn't identify that as being different. And um, certainly, our students are are in that position. Yes. So the, let's move forward. We've, we've done the most back, most open, unrounded uh, vowel, and we've just done the most forward, most open, unrounded vowel. And then we've got to go up a step. Now, up a full unit on the chart, a, a rung on the ladder would be up to e. And this is halfway in between this most cupped a and an e, and that puts us at a. That's a very common sound in English and in both of our home accents. It's a it's a familiar sound. As a as a lexical set, it's very familiar. As a as a phoneme, it's familiar. But I'd say also phonetically, uh, we're probably both. We're not in danger of making it closer to e. Eh. Maybe because we've done voice training, we're Maybe. probably more willing to make it closer to the cupped version. And I, uh, well, certainly in, in Canada, in central Canada where I live, the eh sound of, you know, let, get, said, 
continues to get more and more open. Mm, same and thing's it, happening in California, too. And so it's pushing down, which is going to push the ah sound further down. So, uh, yeah, that that's something that I've, I'm noticing myself, is that my ah sound is getting, you know, uh, m- more use. Ah, as opposed to ah, ah, ah. I think that there's also a, a related quality to this last sound that we've just done, uh, which is nasalization. And in a way, some of the teaching of speech that deals with these phonemes is trying to create a more open version because that helps to reduce nasalization. As we mm. cup a little bit lower, we tend to close the velopharyngeal port a little bit more so we get I can't ask Francis. And by doing that, we're pulling our American speech away from its tendency, a pretty widespread tendency, to nasalize eh. Right. Um, the, the, uh, an, an interesting fact about this uh, eh sound, which some people call the flat A, uh, that eh sound um, acoustically has the bro- most broad spectrum of overtones that uh, if you compare the format frequencies, other, other vowels, some of them sort of bunch together. The first and second are close together, or the second and third are close together. But the first four frequencies of an ah sound, first four formats, are equally spaced. And uh, that gives it a sort of twangy quality, mm-hmm. a brightness across all the range. And uh, I think that there is a bias against that twanginess, the yeah. ah, bright, twangy quality that, uh, I, that I remember singing teachers telling me, but it's such an ugly vowel. <laughs> um, and uh, I firmly believe there are no ugly vowels. There are appropriate ones for, for use in yeah. certain contexts, but uh, that, that bright twang, there, I think there is a bias against it in certain contexts. And that's uh, one reason why it's important to think about these things physiologically, because if we're learning the sound and we're trying to avoid its ugliness, we're going to mm -hmm. change the sound. We won't know what we're really dealing with. Yeah. Uh, we, We don't want to just reorder our speech so that we have a different set which fits some standard of of euphony uh, we, we want to know what's actually going on so those are the three positions if you will and it's probably useful next to talk about them in terms of their phonetic notation sure so that first ah symbol mm-hmm. is uh, represented by a script A. So if you were doing a cursive handwritten A, you would probably write A in the lower case like this, essentially a, a circular loop with a tail on the right-hand side mm-hmm. of the letter. Um, then the second sound we talked about, the ah sound, uh, is the type script representation. Uh, so when you're looking at a uh, something in uh, Times New Roman font. If you look at the look at the lowercase a, it has a sort of a hook top to it. What we call a double double story lowercase yeah. a. And the script uh, one is the single story lowercase si- a. Yes, yes. Uh, and then the uh, f- the third sound that we've talked about is uh, uh, a symbol that 
is a digraph. It actually combines the double story lowercase a with the lowercase e. They're sort of smooshed together into a single mm -hmm. symbol. Um, and it, when you learn to do this with your handwriting, it helps to sort of start up at 10 o'clock and loop around the clock and down to about 7 o'clock, then cross over and then loop the, the lowercase e onto that shape. It makes sort of a shape sort of reminiscent of drawing a uh, clover leaf on a highway. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, making that in a single hand gesture is, you know, it's a learning curve to learn how to do that. Um, but uh, it, it has sort of a, a, a real kinesthetic pleasure to shaping yeah. that letter. So one of my students dubbed that the sexy A. <laughs> she just enjoyed the the shape of, of shaping that. And, uh, uh, you know, my, my version of it is kind of soft and rounded. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, my goal for this year in my teaching is to try to put a little point at the, the point where the lowercase e goes from its flat side up to its rounded part. I, I, I think that's a, a noble goal. A <laughs> I, noble goal in my teaching. I'm noticing as I look at it on the page here in the gentium font, they've actually sort of softened that corner of that e. So it it makes it look a little bit more loopy on both sides. Mm. The other way that I've heard this described is as the swimming eight, because it sort of looks like an eight oh, or infinity yes. sign with arms swimming through the ocean. Yes, yes, I like that, a swimming eight. It doesn't necessarily uh, help us to draw it, but it's kind of cool. It is kind of cool. I like that. I, I will remember that. Um, uh, something about it's the pronunciation of the name of the symbol. We call mm -hmm. it Ash, uh, which it's always nice to have a symbol name that actually has the sound in it, isn't it? Um, yes. The uh, um, Ash is sometimes written A-S-C, um, mm -hmm. another way of spelling the 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 sound Ash. And I believe uh, that's because it's been with us in, in English from Old English. I think the symbol is quite old to represent that specific sound. Uh, uh, yeah, wasn't it borrowed ultimately from the digraph in Latin? I think that's right. Mm. So those three symbols uh, are sort of versions of an A. They're sort of recognizable as A-like. And we, we associate them in our phonetic training with these separate sounds. I want to say that there are, there are lots of variations in between, and we'll save those variations as we go along. But as measures of the three phonetic locations, ah, uh, ah, ah, that time my middle one was a little bit more back. Yes, I like that. <laughs> and uh, so we would imagine that there's sort of an even gradation between each one, uh, at least so that we can make them distinct. But I can't think of an accent in which a, a speaker would use all three of those sounds, make a distinction between words with all three of those sounds. Maybe it'll come to me later. So, uh, yeah. I can. I, I can. It's a, a, a southern dialect where the I yeah, uh, <laughs> yes. sound has become ah. So it wouldn't necessarily be with these lexical sets. Right. But those three sounds could be part of a single accent. Like, my father likes pie. Yes. My daddy likes pie. Yes, there you go. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, let's move on then to the history of the spelling. 
Uh, this is always a section of the show that fascinates me, and I have to hold myself back from investigating it further, which I've done in this case. The, the symbol started uh, in, uh, in Egyptian, in uh, ideographic, ideographic script, as an ox head. And uh, then it got simplified into a sort of three-line sort of triangle. Uh, the, the initial word was Alpu, uh, it became Alpa and Alep and Alif. But when it was first used in these earlier uh, scripts in these languages, it was used to represent the glottal stop. So mm. the first letter of the alphabet, when alphabets were first being used, was a, uh, And that a uh sound the symbol started to represent not the glottal initiation, but the vowel itself, the ah, ah, which is interesting and not particularly useful information for our purposes, but it's nifty right. how that happened. Well, it's good to remember that many of those early alphabets actually only had sounds for the consonants mm -hmm. and not for the vowels, and that the vowels were just, you know, he filled in the gaps to a certain extent. Uh, but once we got into Greek, Latin, Cyrillic, we we settled pretty quickly on that yeah. letter A shape, did we not? Yes, and and in fact, I'd say in in Phoenician, I uh, can see essentially the A shape, but it's on the it's sideways. So you can imagine ah. an ox shape with three lines. It simplifies and tips over into a sort of a sideways, uh, less than symbol with a line through it. Right, and almost looking like a K. Yeah, yeah. And then it gets tipped up. And this, when in this movement into Etruscan and then into Latin, generally there was a flipperoo of the, of the letters. I don't know why, but most... Well, those Phoenicians, they all stood on their side <laughs> yeah, when they were writing. It. Uh, I'm, I'm sure somebody knows the answer to that, and I don't. So we ended up with this uppercase A, uh, which isn't one of the symbols that we've used so far That's uh, for our phonetics. It's a an A-frame. It's a, a bent line with the point at the top and then a line through the middle of that. And through another process that I am not going to go into because I decided not to research it, it, there was a smaller form, a lowercase form, created as well. And those two smaller forms of the, of the single story and double story lowercase a are the ones that we used in the symbols that we just talked about. Right. Now, what I think is interesting is that this sound, this letter existed in a lot of early languages and continues to exist. It's, it's a very common sound. However... A lot of languages have uh, a sound that is intermediate between a and a, and it seems, as much as we can reconstruct, that in Old English, this a letter represented a pretty open a. Mm. And uh, it was in, it was a more phonetic script, I guess you could say. So you see that a and it's man. What happened over time is that a lot of those sounds got tenser, so man became man. And at a certain point, a distinction came into being 
between the long a and the short a. And that was almost entirely a matter of the phonetic context. And for those of you who've listened to the shows before, you know that that's a theme, that because of the consonants before or after a vowel, length tends to change. It makes a certain gestural sense to say, if I'm heading towards uh, an unvoiced plosive, trap, I have to be more ballistic and come to a quick close. Whereas if I'm heading towards a fricative, especially a voiced fricative, have, it, it's easier to make that vowel longer. So in this process of development, a split started to happen between some a words and other a words. Uh, this is referred to at least in J.C. Wells as pre-fricative lengthening. And so a subcategory started to appear that was initially only about quantity. And we've used these terms before, the length of the vowel. And at a certain point, or rather I should say at an uncertain point, because I'm not exactly sure, mm. and I, I think there's probably some debate as to when this happened and where it happened in England, some speakers started to take a word like calf, lengthen it to calf, and eventually to calf. So the vowel quality changed in addition to the vowel quantity changing. That is to say, the shape changed as the length changed. Not only is that a feature that happens that we've talked about before, especially when dealing with these sounds, it happens a lot. And I, I wonder if it's because of the particular shape and architecture of that vowel, if it's more susceptible to, it's a pretty open sound. So mm -hmm. as you change the length of it, it may be that it's more susceptible to shifting uh, its shape. So I think that it might be useful to say that this is the, having laid the groundwork, that this is the end of episode one of Trap, Bath, Palm, or yes. it's episode 15, uh, and we'll move on to 16, but 16 will be a continuation of this. What a great idea. Excellent. All right. Well, for those of you who are listening to this piece by piece, week by week, so long for now. And Eric, I will talk to you a little bit later. Excellent. And I just want to say one last mm -hmm. thing, and that is that if you had a question for us or if you wanted to share a little tidbit with us, you can reach us by email. And our email address is glossonomia at gmail.com. So we uh, hope that you will join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. So uh, uh, great to be back, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you.